We're in chapter 5 this morning. And uh, hey, this is a fun series. I'm enjoying going through this great story. And uh, hey, let's pray. Lord, I just thank you that you love people and you have a heart for us, your creation, desire to have relationship with us. You're, you're at work in the world, at work in our country, at work in this community, at work in our lives. God, it's amazing how you just weave your plan into things, Lord. You work all things together for the good of those who are, are called according to your purposes. And um, I thank you for that, Lord. And I thank you, God, that we can take a, a look here into the story of Esther and see just your providence, see your care, Lord, see your love, see that you are a God who honors his covenant relationships. And um, God, I pray that as, as we wrestle through the word this morning, that you'd speak to our hearts, that each one of us would be challenged, Lord. I pray that, that uh, we would be strengthened and encouraged, Lord. I pray that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. And so, God, we ask your blessing upon this time in the word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> right on. Well, I- if you haven't been, been here, let me just give you this quick clip of where we're at in this story of Esther as we come to Esther chapter 5 and 6. Here's where we left off. The villain, the evil Haman. Remember him? Come on. (laughs) Has hatched his plan for the final solution of the Jewish people. It was only one man who had incited his fury. Uh, refusing to bow down before him. And the problem was for Haman was that exacting the fruit of this wrath and this anger on him on just one man was not enough for him. Uh, Haman disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, we read in in the story. And so with the approval of the king, Haman sent a copy of a decree throughout the 127 provinces of the Medo Persian Empire that they were to destroy and to kill and annihilate young and old, women and children, all the Jewish people on the 13th day of the 12th month. Uh, Like I called him, the Hitler of the Old Testament. And so in response to this edict and this plan going out, Mordecai, um, who is a, a... some sort of judge or counselor within the kingdom and the, the man who raised the queen as his daughter and is Jewish um, ap- appealed to his stepdaughter Esther to go before the king and you know appeal on behalf of her people. And to this point, you know, Esther has kept quiet the fact that she's a Jewess. Although the king, we read, has not called her into, her into his presence for some 30 days. And she, as the queen, could not even come into the presence of her husband unless she had been called there. And without being called into the presence of the king could cost you your life if you just appeared before him. And so, you know, the fact that she hadn't been summoned, and in spite of the fact that she hadn't been summoned, on the request of Mordecai and considering this great tragedy that was about to happen for her people and for her, Esther agreed 
to go before the king to make an appeal on behalf of her people. And she said at the close of chapter 4, if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do what needs to be done here. And her only request was that Mordecai and her people go and fast for her three days, night and day, fast, pray on, on her behalf before she appeared before the king. We pick this up in, in Esther chapter 5. It says this in verse 1. On the third day, that is of the fast, on the third day Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Three days, three nights, and on the third day, that's a familiar story for us because Jesus rose again on the third day. Death couldn't keep Jesus in the ground. He may have been laid in the grave, uh, dead for us, crucified on the cross for us, but on the third day, he rose again. Now the king here is seated on his throne opposite the entrance to the palace. Just to get a little bit of this picture in our mind. I imagine that all around him were officials of his kingdom, his royal attendants, governors, people that were working in the midst of his government. And though she had not been summoned into his presence, Esther had prepared herself to come before the king to come into his presence. You recall that on the very first night, way back when in chapter two, when she met King Ahasuerus, uh, that Esther had taken counsel from one of his attendants, the king's eunuch who looked, at, eunuch who looked after um, his harem, and she said, how should, how should I prepare to go before the king? And he gave her advice on what to wear and how she should dress, and she followed his advice. And now here she is, she gets all done up. Now Esther, she's an outwardly beautiful woman. You got to get that from this story. We, we recognize that. But not only was there an outward beauty to her life, we know that there was also the inward beauty of godliness. Yeah, she had won the favor of the king before and he had chosen her to be his queen. By the providence of God, he had chosen her to, to be queen, to be wife. And now she comes before him again. And this time... She pulls out all the stops. She, she had prepared her heart. She has the people of God praying for her. She's put on her best. She's put on her royal robes. And you might in your mind's eye just consider the, the, the scene for a moment. The king seated on his throne. Likely going about the daily work of the kingdom, you know. Different people appealing to him, talking about things, talking about issues of government, this problem in this province, dealing with his economy, this and that, doing all the things that were involved with being a monarch of such a vast kingdom. And to interrupt him, the queen was practically forfeiting her life. It could cost her her life. And... There he is, he, he's doing his thing, and something catches his eye. Standing in the inner court is the queen. She's stunning, beautiful. More than that, the grace of God is on her life. The people of God, like I said, are interceding uh, on her behalf. And she herself had sought the favor of God. And she had no idea what would happen when she saw the king. But I, I think her heart, in her heart, she had that quiet confidence of a person who, who spent time with God in prayer and has been seeking God for his favor. I, I, I don't know, I just, I think of this and I think every guy knows this picture, right? 
when your woman, you saw her the first time across the room or whatever. This is the king. He's going about the work of the kingdom and something catches his eye. It's the beautiful woman standing at the entrance. Yeah, I think there was a, a quiet confidence in her. And I think she could take confidence from the, the place of prayer. I think that she could take confidence from the humility that she had before the Lord. I think that she could also take, when you, th- when you consider just the greater context, that Esther could also take confidence from the fact that, that God had made a covenant with his people, with the nation and people of Israel to deal with their enemies, uh, to bless those who bless them and to curse those who curse them. I think she took confidence from the fact that, that God in his nature is forgiving, that God hears the prayers of his people, that God responds to people when they come before him with hearts of uh, humility. I think that she took confidence in the fact that she could look at what was going on even within their empire and see that her people had had freedom to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple already. And, and that was ongoing at this point in time. And if you just take all those things and add it up, and as she's spending time in prayer, surely Esther must have come to the conclusion, conclusion that, that God's will was not that his people would perish. W- whatever Haman's plan was. She had reasons to be confident. She also had reasons to fear. Coming before the king, unsummoned, you know, what if he discovered she was a Jew? Confident, I would say yes. With humility, yes. But we also imagine and realize she, she would have stood there with great fear as she considered the uncertainty of the whole situation. Verse two says this. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out the golden scepter that was in his hand. I love that picture. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Uh, Captivated by her beauty, but even more than that, influenced by the sovereign plan of God, influenced by God's providence, I think the prayers of God's people at work, King Ahasuerus extends to his queen the golden scepter. You know, it says this in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 7, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. What a great, what a great thought. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. And God, I think, turned the heart of Ahasuerus, and the king extends to her the golden scepter. He, he, he grants her her life even though she has come before him unsummoned. And, and just when you consider this picture, I mean, how awesome is it to consider that the king of kings, the Lord of lords, is holding out the same scepter to all of mankind. He's reigning from his throne. He's governing over the world. He is governing over the priorities of his kingdom. He is reigning. Grace is reigning. The grace of God is reigning and he holds out his scepter to you. And it's true, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. It's true that apart from Jesus, we're dead in our trespasses and our sin. It's true as Ezekiel said, the soul that sins, 
dies. And in the Medo-Persian Empire, the laws ruled. The laws even ruled over the king unless he extended the golden scepter, the scepter of grace, to Esther. She would die for coming into his presence. And in God's kingdom, the same thing is true. The most high rules over the kingdom of men. In his law, his law demands that you die for your sin. And the only way for the law to be overpowered, we know, is through Jesus Christ. Jesus overcame. Jesus came to earth. God veiled in flesh. He took our sins upon himself. He paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus did not excuse the law. He did not apologize for the law. He didn't lessen the law. He didn't lower the standards of the law. Rather, he fulfilled the law when he paid the penalty for my sin and for your sin. He died as a substitution in our place. And the result is this. God holds out the scepter of his grace to us today. What a great picture. He's holding out the scepter of grace to you. And he he says this. You can come to me. Come. Touch the scepter of my grace. And the question for us always is this. Will we in faith reach out and touch it? Reach out and touch the scepter of grace and receive salvation and eternal life. Verse 3 says, And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? And it shall be given to you even half of my kingdom. You think about the king. I mean, certainly this guy is, he's no fool. He, he knows that Esther would not dare to enter his, his presence unsummoned for some sort of uh, trivial or, or petty reason. And so he wants to comfort his wife. He wants to make her comfortable. And he says, what, what is it, Queen Esther? What's your, what's your request? You name it. It's given to you. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And, and when he offers... Up to half of his kingdom, it's like he's doing this. Here's a blank check. You have a blank check as you come before me. And I just think of what some things that Jesus said. I mean, he said very similar things. He said to his disciples, I give you the keys to the kingdom. What what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. A blank check. Paul said, my my God will supply all of your needs according to the the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, he said about the Lord, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can think or ask according to his power that is work within us. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. He said, if if you remain in me and my words remain in you, if they abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Uh, The blank check is given to us just like it it was given to Esther. And and again, may we have the faith to reach out and touch the scepter of grace. May we have the faith to lay hold of the promises of God in the place of prayer. And so if you think about it, you know, the, the kingdom of God in many ways is is like King Ahasuerus' offer to Esther. You can have as much as you like. 
What a thought about the kingdom of God. You can have, you can experience as much as you like. Scripture never puts any limits on that. You know, I was thinking about it. I was thinking, imagine, I mean, it's so nice out today. Imagine a nice hot summer night, August. You go over to Mike's place, all the gelato's out. I mean, all the gelato. Not just the one freezer, but all the freezers. Uh, come on, we all know Sunshine Coasters. You know, like 75 flavors, whatever it is over there. And you go up to the counter and the service says, you ask for whatever you like and you can have it. There's no limit. There's no cap. You name it. I mean, you'd have to roll me out of there. <laughs> all of us. And the offer of the kingdom is the same. Ask. You'll receive. Seek. You'll find. Knock. The door will be open. And the king says to, to Esther, you name it. Up to half my kingdom. It's yours. And you know, I just think about the kingdom of God and that offer that's before us. And it's like, man, I'm just, myself, all of us, too easily satisfied. Too easily distracted by things that don't matter. Now verse 4 says, And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Now, it's amazing. She doesn't come into his presence and just spill the beans. Blah! Here's what's going on. And I, I think that there are some reasons for that. I mean, if you think about it, it's not exactly the right time to just come, okay, well, yeah, here's the scepter of my grace, and then, you know, boom, drop the word that, listen, king, your number one guy, your, your, your prime minister is a scoundrel who's plotted the murder of millions of people, including myself. You know, it wasn't the right place. If you think about it, all, all the officials around the king, all the, all the daily happenings of the kingdom are going on, and it's not the place to, like, uh, break the etiquette of government. So she keeps quiet. But, you know, as the king makes this offer, it just... It, remind, it, was, it was making me think of uh, Mark Gunger and the Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage. We did that a couple times a few years back. We had so much fun here. We should do it again. But Mark Gunger said this in uh, Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage. He says that women are a handbook on relationships. That men should learn how to deal with relationships by listening to their wives. You know, generally, at least... In a general sense, women are good at relationship. You know, they have a good sense of female intuition about people and about relationships. You know, like guys, typically, we tend to like just grunt and do whatever. <laughs> and, and then go for it. Ladies tend to have more tact in relationship. And so I always remember Mark's words. And sometimes I think, okay, well, maybe I should ask my wife what she thinks about this. And often she'll just give me a perspective that's so much better that if I, you know, in regards to dealing with a situation or a relationship or people, that she says, don't do that. And, you know, I listen to my wife when it comes to such things. Esther had skill, obviously, in relationships as she sought God. And Esther only wanted the king and she only wanted Haman present when she revealed that he was a wicked dude and that he had evil plans and he had plotted against her and her people. And so she invites the two of them to dinner. Now you have to imagine Haman. Um, we get the sense as we read on here that he's there. He's in the, the, the throne room of the king 
going about the work. Probably, I, I don't know, maybe he's sitting beside the king when this offer happens. But you have to imagine that this guy lapped it up. Not only is he the king's number one man, but now even the queen wants to include him in a private dinner just between her and her husband. She wants to have a relationship with this guy. Uh, it's the king, it's the queen, and it's Haman. That's pretty exclusive access to the powers of, of the throne. And she invites Haman into their private lives, so to speak, in a way that's away from the public, that's like friendship. And so there's good reasons for her not to spill the beans immediately, but more than that, I would say this, God's at work. In his providence, he, he is working in this situation. The hand of God is working in the glove of human history. Now Esther risked her life to invite the king to have dinner with her. On the other hand, our king, our king laid down his life, the word of God says, so that he could dine with us. One day, eternally, forever. I'm reminded of what it says in Revelation 3.20. Jesus said, here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus laid down his life to dine with us. He, he, he asked that we would invite him into our lives for a relationship with him. In verse five, the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king has been, you know, generous to Haman. Now the queen invites him to dinner. Esther's banquet is already prepared and ready to go. So the king and Haman hurry off to attend this dinner. God is working in the heart of the king. Um, God is working because both the king and Haman cooperate in this whole plan. Verse 6. As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted, granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom... It shall be fulfilled. Now the king obviously knows that Esther wants something or that something is troubling her uh, or whatever. So he again repeats his offer. What's your wish? It'll be granted. What's your request? Up to half my kingdom. He's essentially saying this. You can have anything you want. And, and I think that all the wives in the room would probably want their husbands to know that this is a good principle for your marriage. <laughs> When your wife is upset, something's not quite right, you just make this offer. Anything you want, honey. Anything you want. You, you know, you can have half of nothing. <laughs> no, what's bugging you? What's your request? You can have anything you want. So, you know, I don't know, guys. Just try it next time, okay? See what happens. Ask, and it shall be fulfilled. Verse 7. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So, again, she doesn't spill the beans. She gives a second dinner invitation that, come again tomorrow, and I'll make it known. Now, we're going to see that 
that whatever the reason was that Esther delayed in, in spilling the beans here and making her request known, God is going to use it to his advantage. In fact, I think it's safe to say that the Lord probably restrained Esther uh, from telling the king about Haman's plan. God in his sovereignty just held her back. Maybe there was fear in her heart, but I think God held her back, and you're going to see why. You know, the Bible says this in, in Proverbs 16:1: To a man belongs the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the reply of the tongue. And, and I'm sure that the king was not without plans the next evening, that Haman was not without plans the next evening. But whatever they were, uh, they were canceled to make time for the queen. And for Haman, I mean, you think about it, a second dinner invitation would have only inflated the confidence of this evil man. The word of God says pride comes before the destruction. A haughty spirit before the fall. The scripture says he who trusts himself is a fool. And little did prideful Haman know that he didn't have much longer to live. And I think God... I mean, you're going to, I'll kind of point this out a couple times, I, but I really believe that God is, is going to, or he is giving Haman the opportunity to turn from his wickedness. But his pride is going to stand in the way. You know, the psalmist said this, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And Haman was confident that he was set for life. He did not have a heart of wisdom. A, a heart of wisdom knows that the only place to put your confidence is in the Lord, in Jesus Christ. And Haman was a man who trusted many other things. He, he was a man of the flesh, as we've talked about in previous weeks. In, in his flesh, he trusted his money. Haman trusted his power. Haman trusted his position. And you know, those things, money and power and, and position are not things that deserve your trust. The only safe place to put your confidence is in the Lord. You know, Job was a man who had all of those previous things and he lost it all and more. Children, possessions, riches, health, wealth, you name it. And yet Job said this, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. See, that's a man who yet he had all those things and lost all those things. They were not the source of his confidence in life. Whether he had them or not, it did not matter. His confidence was in the Lord and he could say, I know my Redeemer lives, and on that day, I'll see God in my flesh. Now, King Ahasuerus, he doesn't know what's going on with his wife. I, I imagine that his intrigue was growing. So him and Haman depart from dinner, and they're going to come back the next night. Verse 9 says, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. 
Again, Haman, you know, this is a man, he, he's a legend in his own mind, isn't he? He's the king's number one man. Uh, he believed that he was such a smash hit at the dinner with the queen that he had been invited back for the next night. His head is swollen. His heart is swollen with pride. You can see how inflated the view of himself is by just how easy he can be turned from joy and gladness of heart. I mean, it's a flip of the switch and this dude's in a rage. Look at it. Offended at one little Jew, one little Jew who won't bow down before him or even acknowledge his presence by at least standing. And this guy moves from joy and gladness of heart to rage and wrath. You know what's been said this? That you can always tell the size of a man by the things that irritate him. That, that nailed me. You know, if it only takes little things to irritate him, then he's a little man, said the author that I read. And I would ask you, what sort of things bother you? What, what things annoy you? Don't let things that are insignificant mar your life. That's a sign of a little man. You know, the scripture says, little foxes spoil the vine. Don't let the work of God's spirit in your life be destroyed by little things that don't matter that irritate you. But we get even more of a sense of who this man was. It's, it's pretty lame. Every time, you, you know, you read this story, for the rest of your life, every time you read the story of Esther, it, it just grows more and more pathetic, this man, as you read, him, read about him. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promo promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. What hatred filled this man's life. Verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. Haman's feeling pretty good about himself after dinner with the queen. And when a man starts to brag... We see the heart of pride here. These are the things that human beings brag in when they're full of themselves. He boasts about his riches. He boasts about how much money he makes. Then he talks about his children. Dude, parents, we love to boast in our kids. I mean, it's just what we do. Then he boasts about his position. He boasts about his promotions. And of course, you know, as a man, he likes to boast about being great with the ladies right here. Only me, only was I invited, the, the only guest besides the king invited to dinner with the queen. And she's inviting me back tomorrow. Now, you, you know, I was thinking about, everyone boasts from time to time, of course, right? 
But this is a man whose ego is on steroids. He, it's totally on steroids. And even though he, he felt so good about himself, there was one thing that just irritated the heck out of this guy that so got under his skin that it robbed him of all the joy in his life. One little Jew who wouldn't bow to him. And it enraged him. So his wife suggests, build a gallows. Uh, tall enough to make a public spectacle of Mordecai. And his friends agreed. And, and Haman thought it was a good plan. And so he foolishly acted on it. Now 50 cubits is 75 feet tall. Build the gallows. He's going he's gonna to make a spectacle of Mordecai. Now when we read gallows, I, I think it's a Western thinking thing. We think he's going to be hung, right? You're going to drop him. That would be nice. Because in that culture, it was the other way. Impaled. 75 feet and placed up on top of a pole for all to see. And so he quickly has it all prepared. We come to chapter 6. On the night, the king, on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now we know, man, nothing is worse than a sleepless night. You know, I'm a kind of guy, I do not drink coffee after four o'clock because I don't even want to risk it. Because I hate not being able to sleep and tossing and turning and rolling over in, in bed. And that's exactly what was going on with the king. Maybe he had too much coffee at dinner with Esther. I don't know what it was. Maybe he was wondering what was going on with Esther. Maybe he was wondering what was on her heart and what she was going to request. Maybe he was worried about the economy. You know, as a king, there are many burdens that were on his heart. And ultimately, ultimately I would say this. That this happenstance, this sleepless night is from God because God is going to work. You know, sometimes when you can't sleep, you know, go watch TV, grab a book, read. Um, the king here decides that he's going to read. Well, he's not going to read because he's the king. He's going to have someone else read him a bedtime story. <laughs> and apparently he was looking for a real sleeper of a book, one that would bore him to sleep. And so he gave orders, bring the book of memorable deeds the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And you just think about it, and I don't know, the library of the king, and all the scrolls or books that were there, and all the different things that could have been grabbed off the shelf in the providence of God, when the young man who was attending the king went to that shelf, and he pulled a book off the shelf, he just so happened to grab a book that recorded deeds that had happened five years earlier. Uh, deeds that recounted, in particular, the fact that Mordecai had saved the king's life. God's providence at work. Verse two. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who had guarded, this is from Esther chapter two, you might recall, Two of the king's units who, were guarded, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? 
The king's young men who attended him to him said, uh, nothing has been done for him. So in the recorded details, as the bedtime story is being read, uh, something catches the king's mind, his ears. He, he notices that nothing is recorded of any honor done for Mordecai after he saved the king's life. Again, this is the providence of God at work, isn't it? Verse four, and the king said, who's in the court? Love this. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that were prepared, that he had prepared for him. Uh, don't you love the irony? It's awesome. I mean, it's just the drama that only the Bible gives you. It's so good. You know, and, and I read this, and I, all I can think is, man, God, you're so good. Only you could perfectly unfold a plan like this. I mean, it, it, you think about Mordecai and saving the king's life. It probably totally bugged him that he had never received any sort of acknowledgement from the king uh, for saving him. It had totally gone unnoticed. But now it's going to be noticed five years later. You know, it reminds me of what it says in Romans chapter 5. That we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom has been given, whom the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, before Haman could bring his request to the king, the king first had something that he wanted to talk to Haman about. And, and again, I, I, I think it's fair to say that on God's part, God is actually warning Haman. He's having an opportunity to, to have a, a change of course, to do a course correction before he finds himself destroyed. You know, the Bible says that God's forgiving. He's not willing that any should perish. Imagine this, not even Haman. On the path to destruction, God always gives the opportunity for course correction, for repentance. And, and I read this, and I can't help but be amazed at the providence of God. A story like this, despite all its impending tragedy and the tragedy that even happens blows your mind away because I, I just think, man, God is so at work that I want to praise him in the midst of this story. And that's why I read Romans chapter 5 because we look at so many things in our lives and we say, what is going on? How do I interpret this? You know, the Bible says this, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. His plans to all generations. Proverbs 21 verse 30 says, there's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Romans chapter 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And you know, I'm convinced that the day will come when we will look back on our lives in, in hindsight 
and we will see the hand of God's providence here and here and here and here. I mean, we see it in, in part now. But the day will come when we will look back and we will see the hand of God's providence in the things that bothered us. We'll see it in the things that got under our skin, the areas that we thought were, were failures, that we believed were defeats, that, that hurt us, that left us disappointed in life. One, one day in the future, God for you and I is going to connect all of, all of the dots and we'll look back and though maybe it was hurt and it was disappointment and it was anger, we'll say, God, in your providence, you worked in my life in the midst of that. I praise you. We will look back and, and we will see that that which was meant for evil, God turned to good. He will turn it to good. You know, you know that is our confidence. This is the confidence of the Christian life. And, and for that reason, we can praise God. We can exalt him. We can look into the eye of the storm and we can say, Father, I trust you. I don't understand. I don't see. I'm not sure, but I trust you. I'm confident in your nature, in your character, in your intentions towards me. God will have his way. Verse five says, and the king's young man told him, Haman is there standing in the court. What a coincidence. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Seriously, buddy? Like seriously, of course he thought that, right? Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? He only oversees 127 provinces and millions of people. And he thinks about me all the time. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. This guy's so full of himself. But you know, let me say this about our king, King Jesus. He does think about you all the time. All the time, you're on his mind. All the time, he's praying for you. He, he's, he's not like King Ahasuerus in a human sense. A, a human king and a king of this world, his kingdom exists to serve him. We recognize that. Our king serves us. What an amazing thing that, that he condescends, that he comes to where we are, and we in turn worship him. And I could say this with confidence today. God is thinking about you this morning. You know, th th today, Jesus, you are on his mind. You're not too insignificant. Your problem's not too small. He's thinking about you. And, and he wants to help you. He, he, he wants to reveal to you how his providence is working in the midst of all that's happening in your life. Now as we read on here, we, we, we get some insight into Haman. What does Haman really want? What does Haman really want, you know? 
What should the king do for a man whom he delights to honor is the question. And we're going to see that, that Haman would like nothing more than to be the king, really. Remember Haman, the Agagite uh, of the descent of Amalek? He's an Amalekite. He is a picture of the fleshly minded man. That is what he is illustrating to us. He illustrates the desires of the flesh. And what does the flesh ultimately desire? The answer is this, to be on the throne, to have control. The flesh wants to rule our lives. And as we read in Galatians, we must put the flesh to death and walk in the spirit. And so Haman wants a throne. Remember, Haman thinks the king is about to bestow the honor on him. So he says in verse 7, And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead on the horse, lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. I'm not sure, maybe reading between the lines, but I think Haman might even like to wear the king's underwear and use his toothbrush and sleep in his bed. And I actually wonder if King Ahasuerus began to see through Haman at this moment right here. That if the opportunity came, this little guy would take advantage of any situation to be king himself. That he'd knife me in the back if he could take the throne. And that is the flesh that Haman is the picture. Always manipulating, always pushing its way to the front, always scheming to be the first in line to get the throne. Verse 10. Then the king said, to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you have mentioned. Now, I, I just wish I could see Haman's face. That's it, right there. I'd be satisfied. I mean, what more do you need to think about this? I wish I could see his face when the king said that. Wow. But he's a schemer, so he kept it under control. Verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Humiliating for him. Verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was, that was getting your face rubbed in the humble pie right there. And I just find it amazing because it was just last week who was mourning when we were going through the text. It was Mordecai tearing his clothes. It was Mordecai putting ashes on his head and covering himself. And now it's the other way around. And, and Haman's got to know this is the beginning of the end for him. Verse 13. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then the wise man and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but surely fall before him. I, I don't know. 
I don't want to presume. Don't think Zeresh, Haman's wife, had the gift of encouragement. <laughs> Not at all. Verse 14. She tells him, you're done. You're done. Verse 14. Wrap it up right here. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Dun, dun, dun. Till next week. You can read ahead in your Bibles, okay? Please. Um, you know, Haman's just so blown away here, right? He is just crushed. He's so emotionally surprised. It's just this bombshell has fallen on his life. All of these plans, all of this pride, his face has been rubbed in humble pie. And he did not see it coming. He had totally no control over it. Uh, he, he seems to even for, have forgotten that he's supposed to meet the king and queen for dinner. Until the eunuchs arrive. And God, we just see, is at work. Don't you see that as you read this? That he's overruling everything? His name is not even mentioned, not once in the book of Esther. Not mentioned once. And yet he's there in every line, overruling everything, seeing to it that evil plots do not succeed against his people. And that blessing be bestowed on his people and that his plan and his providence unfold. Isn't it awesome? And can we take great hope this morning in, in that God would do the same thing for us? What confidence we can have, Christian friends, in our Savior. That he works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. He loves us. Take confidence in the Lord this morning. Reach out. Touch the scepter of grace. Every day. Come before your king who welcomes you and says, come into my presence. Experience my grace. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you.